Well, our sermon text this morning is just one single verse, Matthew 6, verse 9, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Pete usually preaches on longer passages than that. So if he's preaching on just a single verse, this is going to be a really short sermon. Sorry. We won't go too long, though, I promise. But what we will have to say, I trust, will be a blessing to us all as we look at this one verse in God's holy word. It's extracted from the Sermon on the Mount. We recently had a Sunday school class where we went through the Sermon on the Mount. And in that class, we constantly returned to the fact uh, of the context for the Sermon on the Mount. It is one in which we read in Matthew 5 that Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So we understand that the Sermon on the Mount in general and the Lord's Prayer in particular, from which we find this verse, are meant for Jesus' disciples. Certainly there are others who are listening in and they are more than welcome to listen in and I'm sure that Jesus hoped that they would learn from those things that he had to say but his primary audience was those who call themselves disciples of Jesus. We have the same situation this morning. Jesus speaks to us through his word, through the preaching of his word this morning and his primary audience is those of us who know we are sinners, those of us who know we have done nothing to earn an audience with God, those of us who know we have done nothing to save ourselves and that there is no good that is native to us, but rather we come before God solely based on the merit that Christ Jesus had, solely based on his holiness solely based on the fact that his blood shed on the cross has cleansed us of our sin and has made us holy in the eyes of God so that we might come before him. And when we do come before God, specifically in prayer, we learn from the words of this passage how we are to do it. Jesus, we are told by Luke, was asked by his disciples, please, Lord, teach us how to pray and He taught them that they're not to pray merely in order to be seen by others so that others would think that they are very spiritual. Nor are they to babble on and on and on thinking that by their many words they are heard by God. But rather, he taught them with those familiar words that we spoke in prayer just a moment ago from Matthew 6, verse 9, where Jesus said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we pray that indeed your name would be hallowed through the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts this morning that we might burn in our hearts with love for you and that we might seek to see you glorified in all the earth and that we might live our lives to your glory and to your honor 
Speak to us now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just the other day, I was watching a movie with my children. <clears throat> the movie is a movie called The Rookie. Uh, it came out some time ago. And, and if you're unfamiliar with the movie, what it's, what it's about is it's actually based on a true story, a man named Jim Morris, who was at one time a, a baseball prospect and he was drafted early in the draft and went to the minor leagues and he blew out his arm to where he could hardly throw anymore. He certainly could not throw well enough to make a career of it. So he left baseball and became a science teacher at a high school in Texas. <clears throat> well, he was also a baseball coach. And long story short, after about 10 years or so of, of teaching and coaching, uh, he made a deal with his team that if, if they won enough games and played well enough that he would actually go try out for uh, a major league team that was having tryouts uh, in the days to come there. And sure enough, they won enough games. Sure enough, he tried out. And sure enough, he was actually offered a contract at this age of 35 when most of the kids playing in the minor leagues at that level are 19 or 20 years old with a long career ahead of them. He actually got an opportunity to pitch at the age of 35 and, and he worked his way up through the minors and actually made it to the major leagues. It was really a pretty incredible story. Uh, he ended up pitching for the Tampa Bay Rays and, and it turned out as, as uh, the Lord's providence would have it that his first game in the major leagues was against the Texas Rangers in Texas so that his family and his friends, his neighbors and his father could be present at that first game that he played in the major leagues. As I watched this, when, when he was called up to the major leagues and when he made it into a major league game and, and when his father was shown as being present at that game, I must admit I, I got choked up, I got teary-eyed as I watched this. And I, I've seen this movie before a number of times, and this happens to me every time I see this movie. There aren't a lot of movies that, that I just routinely uh, have this have this reaction to. Uh, the one other one, as I've mentioned before, is Field of Dreams. Now you might say, well, both of those movies are baseball movies. And that's why Pete gets choked up at those. And perhaps that's a part of it. I am a big baseball fan. But I think that the reason I get choked up at those two movies is because fundamentally, they're not just about baseball. They have a deeper meaning to them. They're also both about fatherhood. They're both about a strained relationship between a man and his father. They're both about how that man dreamt impossible dreams and sought to see those dreams come true and saw them come true against the most improbable of odds. And through seeing those dreams come true, both men experienced healing in their relationship with their fathers. Now I think that such a yearning is native to all human hearts because it echoes back to us the true story. The true story that we have all experienced with our Heavenly Father. The fact that we have a strained relationship with our Heavenly Father. The fact that we in light of this strained relationship, dream the most improbable of dreams, that we have seen this dream come true, that God himself would take on human flesh 
that he would become a man and with it take on himself our sin, that the immortal would die, but that the dead would rise. And through it all, that strained relationship with our Heavenly Father would be made right again. That is the story that resonates with us. It echoes deep within our hearts because it is the true story. It is the story that God has written through history. And so it echoes that that longing that is in the heart of every man and woman and every girl and boy. A longing to truly know God as our Father. And so it is that Jesus teaches us that when we pray, that is how we as disciples are to come before God. Those first words of that prayer, our Father. It shows us a lot of things. It teaches us a lot of things. We need to realize, first of all, that this is not a natural relationship. I suppose that there is a general sense in which we could understand that God is the Father of all and that he is the creator of all and everything finds its origins in him. But that is not the sense in which the Bible generally refers to God as a father. The sense in which he refers to him as a father is a different sense altogether. And, and we can see that in a number of passages. In, in John 5, we see that it is said that this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. You see, that was the problem. He was calling God his own father. Jesus' understanding of the fatherhood of God is by no means universal, something that everybody had, but rather something that was peculiar to those whom God had chosen, to those whom God had made his own. For Jesus, when he was talking to those who wanted to kill him, in John 8 said, You are of your father, the devil. For your will is to do your father's desires. So we see that those who were against Jesus, he considered their father not to be God, but their father was the devil. Now, we need to be careful that we are not too quick to kind of throw those people on the other side of the fence and make sure that we're on the opposite side of the fence. Because as we read from Ephesians 2, that our situation once was not so different from theirs. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, The Bible teaches us that we, by nature, are children of wrath because of our fallen nature, because of the fact that Adam sinned and with him all of us sinned. All of creation has fallen and we have fallen with it. And so it is that we are no longer rightly known to be children of God, but are instead children of the devil, children of wrath, deserving God's eternal punishment. That is what we deserve But a beautiful thing has happened to us. 
If we have faith in Christ Jesus, if we trust in him and his payment for our sins, then we have been adopted by God. Though our natural father is the devil, God has adopted us. One pastor puts it this way. He says, God has declared as an act of his grace that we are not only saved from our sins and justified in his sight, but we are now children of his household. What a beautiful truth that is. We are children of his household with all the benefits, with all the privileges, with all the rights that come along with it. What a beautiful thing that is. Not deserved by us, not earned by us, not native to us, but rather something God has conferred upon us by his grace. What a beautiful thing adoption is. Wherein we come into the family of God. I enjoy genealogy and I love to trace back my family heritage. Now, my grandfather, my grandfather Scribner, after whom I'm named, was actually adopted. And so when, when I'm tracing back my family tree, I guess there could be a sense in which I would be interested in finding out who his birth parents were uh, and tracing back the family line that way. And I must admit there is some mystery there, and I'm just curious because we don't have that information. I'd like to know it just because genealogy is very much about finding out the answers to these mysteries and solving these problems. But, but far more important to me, far more interesting to me than following that line is, of course, following the Scribner line back. Even though my grandfather was adopted, he was not born into that family. By virtue of his adoption, he became a Scribner in every sense. And by virtue of his adoption, I too am a Scribner in every sense. And so it is, by virtue of our adoption by God, we are in his family, united with Christ our brother. We are able to call on God as Father. What does this mean for us that we can call him our Father? Well, it means that we have relationship with him. And by virtue of our relationship, we have access to him. We have no other right by which we can come before God even, other than this relationship as Father. We have done nothing to earn it. And at the same time, we can be completely confident in the fact that we have it and will not lose it. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. It also binds us all together. If you are a child of God and I am a child of God, that means we are brother and sister. We are siblings. We are bound together with one another so that my cares and concerns and joys become your cares and concerns and joys. And vice versa. We cannot have relationships that are just here one day and gone the next. We are bound together because we do not pray my father, but rather we pray our father. And the fact that God is our father means that he has given us his name. He has given us our identity, our reputation. We live out our life in order to keep up the reputation of the family name. We need to live our lives in holiness so that 
that would be maintained. We receive the compassion of God, as was mentioned before by Reverend Polk. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And as he also mentioned, God is a giver of good gifts to us. But later in the Sermon on the Mount, we read that if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The problem is, though, we we don't always understand what is good. What is good for us is not always what we enjoy or what we want. And so it is that one of the good things that a father gives to his children is discipline. We do not like the discipline of God. We do not like it when God reproves us. But it is good for us that we receive this. God's word tells us in Proverbs 3, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. And in Deuteronomy 8 we read, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And Hebrews 12 tells us, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why is this a good thing? Why is this a good thing that we receive the chastisement of God, that we receive the reproof of God, that we receive the discipline of God? It is a good thing because Hebrews 12 goes on to tell us, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. You see, that is the idea, that we would walk in holiness, that we would, in our holiness, keep up the family name. That people would look at us, see the life that we are living, see the walk that we are walking. And they would honor our Father who is in heaven because of the way we live our lives. Now when you're a kid, at least when I was a kid, I assume you're the same way. You kind of have this idea that, that your dad can do just about anything. He's pretty much the closest thing there is to a superhero, I guess. And uh, I hate to break this to my children. Cover your ears, kids. Uh, Dads can't do everything. In fact, we fail regularly, don't we? We fail in all sorts of ways. Some of us spend too much time and energy on work, not leaving enough of either for our families. Some of us are emotionally distant from our children not investing in them the way we should, rather relating to them more like a boss than as a father. And some of us fall short in our examples of godliness before them. With the many ways that we sin unrepentantly in front of our children. As earthly fathers, we are all fallen and broken, and sinners. And so we are not always able to do those things that we desire to do for our children. We're so very finite, so very limited. But Jesus takes care in this passage to point out that this is not the way it is with our Heavenly Father. He points out that our Father is in 
heaven. This is our Father in heaven. Literally, it says our Father in the heavens. Now, we could take this to mean that what it's talking about is is just the geographic location of where God is. That he's located in that place. And certainly that's true. uh, That this phrase, in the heavens, is is actually used most commonly to designate where God is. That's how it's used five times in the Sermon on the Mount alone. Uh, It talks about our our God, our Father in the heavens. Uh, But it's not just a geographical reference. We know this because of what the whole corpus of Scripture says about it. If we look in Second Chronicles 2, verse 6, we would read, But who is able to build him a house, since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? You see, the, the heavens are not great enough to contain God. He is greater than the heavens. And so it is that when we read about our Father in heaven, we know that it's not just pointing to his physical location. We look up this phrase and see how it's used throughout the Bible. and We see that contra to, to our physical world, which is visible around us, the heavens are an invisible realm. We see that it is where our names are written, where our hope is laid up, where our reward is great, where we are even right now in Christ Jesus seated and where the throne of majesty is. It is the very presence of God that makes heaven, heaven. You see, five years ago, when I moved here from St. Louis, Missouri, I left St. Louis, but St. Louis continued to be St. Louis. But were God to leave heaven, it would no longer be heaven. For it is the presence of God that makes heaven, heaven. But it is much more than a geographical designation, as I said. John Calvin put it this way. He said, when the scripture says that God is in heaven, the meaning is that all things are subject to his dominion, that the world and everything in it is held by his hand, that his power is everywhere diffused, that all things are arranged by his providence. This is the glorious truth of what it means that our Father God is in heaven. It means that not only is God willing to help us, but he is able. He is able. And because he is willing and because he is able, that means he will and he does. And because he will help us and because he does help us, we pray, hallowed be your name. Now, if you're like me, when you were a child and you learned this, you, you originally learned it as maybe a, a three or a four-year-old, those, those early days when you first learned it, and, and you learned, hollow be your name, you know, which is the farthest thing from possible that, that it could actually mean. It's an exact opposite. Uh, the, the word hollow means empty, right? It means empty. It means, excuse me, it means having a, uh, a shell, but there's nothing inside of it. And, and yet when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying the exact opposite. We're saying that your name is weighty. It is full. It is, it is pregnant with meaning and with glory. It is the exact opposite of that. 
We are saying many things when we say, hallowed be your name. First of all, one of the obvious things is that we're saying that we ought not to misuse the name of God. This, of course, we know from the Ten Commandments. Uh, we ought not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We, we need to not misuse it. And there are many ways that we misuse it. One of those is, is when we use God's name as almost like a magical incantation. We think that when we pray and then just slap on in Jesus' name at the end of it, that we have somehow made our prayers effective because we've said the magic words. It's kind of like abracadabra. That is misusing his name. It is trusting in a formula rather than trusting in him. For to pray in Jesus' name is to pray on his behalf and for his benefit. Another way we fail to hallow his name is through misrepresenting it. We mentioned this before, the idea that we go through life sometimes misrepresenting the family name, failing to keep up the reputation of the name. This is something that we're all guilty of. And whenever we realize that we are guilty of this, we need to stop. We need to repent. We need to turn, seek God's forgiveness for our sins and follow him more closely. We need to understand that, that though in today's culture, in our world, the primary use of a name is to delineate one person from another, that in biblical times, it was far more common that a name would actually tell you something about that person specifically. And that's why throughout the Bible, we see all kinds of examples of people who, when they had some life situation change, what happened to them? Their name was changed. We see it with Abram becoming Abraham, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul. Throughout the scriptures, we see these examples of people having their name changed because their situation in life changed, because their calling, their role, their person changed. There is a one-to-one -one identification between one's name and that person. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we are not just saying that God's name ought to be revered. We are saying that God ought to be revered. That he ought to be respected. Which is great when we feel like respecting God. But the question might arise, what about when I don't feel like it? What about when, when I just don't feel like hallowing God's name? I trust that happens to all of us at times when the, the affections of our heart just don't burn quite as brightly. What are we to do then? Well, first of all, we need to remember that, that it's not just a matter of feeling. It's a matter of action that we are called to. God is not just calling us to feel a certain way. He is calling us to act a certain way. And so we need to live out lives of holiness. We need to live to God's glory, even when we don't feel like it. But I don't tell you just to do those duties mindlessly. What we need to do is we need to confess to God the fact that our passions, that our desires, that our love for him is not as strong as it should be. And we need to pray to him that he would, he would by his spirit, fan into flame those dying affections of our hearts so that they would burn brightly for him. And then we go about doing our duties with the hope that in so doing, 
those affections would grow. But we pray that this would be true not only for our hearts individually, we pray that it would be true for our brothers and sisters as well, that it would be true for our church. We pray that God's name would be hallowed, that he would be honored, not just at Calvary, but in our community as well, and that he would receive glory and honor in our nation and in our world and in all the cosmos, that all of creation would sing out the glories of God, that he might receive the honor that is due his name. The primary way that we can do that now, the primary way that we can give him honor, is by trusting in him alone. Trusting that we can do nothing to earn his pleasure, but that Christ has earned his pleasure for us. And that as we are united with Christ through faith, that his pleasure is indeed ours. Trusting in that, trusting in his fatherly love, that as we have been united with Christ, he is our brother, and his father is our father. And in light of that, I would be negligent not to mention here on Father's Day that that means we honor our earthly fathers too. We honor our earthly fathers because they have been placed in that position by God. Their parental authority over us, their position point to the authority and the position of God over us. So we need to show them the respect that God would have us show them. Not just because our parents have earned that, but because God has earned it. So this Father's Day, let us honor our earthly fathers. If our fathers are still with us, let us honor them by making much of them, expressing to them our love and our respect, our admiration, our thanks for them. And if our fathers are not with us, let us honor them by the way we live our lives, by the holiness that is resident in our lives through Christ Jesus, being lived out. Let us make much of Christ Jesus and in so doing, honor both our heavenly and our earthly fathers. For it is the ultimate purpose of all things to hallow God's name. John Piper puts it this way. He says that in eternity, we will not hallow God's name so that something else happens or for the purpose of something else, but rather everything that we do will be done so that God's name might be hallowed. Let us begin that work today. Let us live our lives today bringing glory to God so that the words of petition from Matthew 6 verse 9 might become words of declaration in our lives. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Amen. Please pray with me.
Lord, we pray that you would indeed strengthen us, that we might bring you glory. We thank you for your grace, for it is only by your grace that we can know you. It is only by your grace that we can live holy lives. Work in us now. Be hallowed in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.